Good afternoon. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. We'll be in 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 15, and it says, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work as it is written. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. The word of God for the people of God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good afternoon. I hope that y'all are doing well. My name is Marco, and I serve as the preaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. In the event that you did not catch Miguel, we're going to find ourselves in the New Testament. We're looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 15. While you open or load your Bible, let me just give you two things. If you are new, we'd love to connect with you. And we have these connect cards in the pews and in the foyer in the back. Uh, Fill one out. Let me encourage you to fill one out so that we can pray for you or hang out with you. In addition to that, we got these Bibles in the pew. That is our gift to you. We love to preach from God's Word. Uh, We love God's Word. Therefore, we love to gift God's Word. So please take one with you. Or if you know someone that would uh, uh, benefit from having God's Word in their hand, hook them up. Well, while you uh, continue to get ready, let me start with a bit of a story. Uh, And there's this one little account of a young girl and her mom going to church. And uh, the mom wants to teach her daughter about giving. And so she gives her daughter a dollar and a quarter and tells her little girl uh, to, to put whichever one she wants in the collection plate and to keep the rest. Right At the end of service, the mom's talking to her little girl and asks her, which one she put in the collection plate. Did you put the quarter in or did you put the dollar in? And so the little girl responds by saying, well, I was going to give the dollar, but just before the collection, the man in the pulpit said that we should all be cheerful givers. I knew I'd be a lot more cheerful if I gave a quarter, and so I did. Over the last few weeks, we've been walking through this series, this act of grace in chapters 8 and 9 of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. He's writing to this church about an offering that he's going to be collecting from them in order to care for another church for needy saints in Jerusalem. And the Corinthians, put it nicely, have been kind of dragging their feet on this collection. They were pretty amped about it in the beginning when Paul told them about the needs in Jerusalem. They were pretty uh, amped and pumped to support them. And uh, as a matter of fact, last week, we learned that their eagerness to raise support for the church in Jerusalem inspired other churches in Macedonia to jump in and get after it. And throughout the course 
of these two chapters, we will have noticed that on one hand, the Apostle Paul has actually only given one command throughout the, these two chapters, and that command has been to finish what they said they committed to. That's the only thing he has told the Corinthians to do in these two chapters. They were all about collecting uh, some, some cash to hook the saints up in Jerusalem, and they've been dragging their feet. And so in chapter 8, Paul tells them, finish it through. On the other hand, Paul hasn't necessarily spoken about any kind of amount to give. Rather, he's been pressing the Corinthians on whether or not their hearts are shaped by their understanding of grace, God's undeserving favor towards sinners and how that shapes their generosity. Paul's aim and ours has been to uh, teach them, to press them, to give generously from a heart that has been shaped by grace. Elsewhere, Paul writes that our love for one another, our love for others, is proved to be genuine when we give generously. And that's not a, the only way, but in the context of these two chapters, he's saying, hey, your love is going to be proven through this act of grace. His point is that if our hearts have been shaped by grace as a result of what God has done for us, then giving generously is a natural outpouring of that grace. Paul knows, just like we talked about week one, Paul knows that this is a sensitive topic, but he doesn't shy away from it because it's not separate from their spiritual life and growth. In our last section of chapter nine, God, through Paul, continues to examine the heart of the giver. Like the story of the young girl and her mom, many of us tend to think that we can be generous or cheerful, but not both at the same time. <laughs> However, as we examine the text, here's what I want you to see. I want you to see that giving isn't a complacent routine, but a cheerful act of worship. So we're gonna pray, and then we'll dig into the text. And actually, before that, let me give you the three things we're gonna be covering. We're gonna be looking at the promises of God, the glory of God, and the gift of God. One more time, the promises of God, the glory of God, and then the gift of God. There's your three-point sermon. Here we go. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we begin by praising and thanking you for another week, another Sunday, where we get to gather and sing praises to your name, where we get to look back and see your work for us, sustaining us throughout the week. God, I pray that as we examine your word, that one, it would be sweeter than the taste of honey. Two, uh, that our hearts would be receptive to what you have for us through the text. So Lord, give us grace and give us wisdom, uh, particularly as we close this series. May we be a church, may we be a people uh, that is shaped by grace. And so we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, beginning with the promises of God, in these closing verses of chapter 9, Paul reminds us that cheerful giving is an act of worship because for the Corinthians and for us, it's rooted in the promises of God. So let's look at verse 6. Paul opens by saying, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So Paul says, in light of everything that I've just told you, in light of everything that I've been writing to you, here's the main point. Here's what I want you to take away. 
You reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. The smaller you give, uh, the, 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 the smaller your harvest. Likewise, the larger you give, the larger your harvest. Now, with that being said, that probably makes a lot of people uncomfortable. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. Let me tell you right off the bat what Paul is saying. He's saying the way God's economy works is the more generous you are, the more satisfied you are. Because it is God who supplies our needs. See, a text like this, verse 6 a text like this makes us very uncomfortable, and it even made me uncomfortable reading it. But remember, cheerful giving is an act of worship because we are rooted in the promises of God. Therefore, for a moment, let me show you how some people, particularly preachers and teachers of the prosperity gospel, will use a verse like this. Here's what you need to know about heresy. You need to know that every single heresy is a twisting of what is true, of what God has said, of what God has promised. That's how every single heresy starts. And so in the context of the prosperity gospel, in a reading of a verse like this, the prosperity gospel teaches that the reason you give is so that you would get more. If you would just sow your $1,000 seed and hook us up with this contribution, you're going to get wealthy. God's going to pay it back tenfold. You're going to get healthy. If you give, you're going to get way more. You get more health. You get more wealth. You'll even find favor with God. But that's not how God's economy works. That's not how it ever works. What Paul is saying here is that we give, not so that we get more, we give so that we can give more. It's really countercultural. We give so that we would have more joy in giving. In other words, as we give, God entrusts us with more. We give so that we would grow in cheerfulness. Why? Because God is the one who supplies our very need. If you want to use that seed language, it is God who supplies us with seeds. To his disciples, this is not on the notes, Jesus goes on to tell them, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in a very little, in very little is also dishonest in much. Our sowing is for kingdom purposes, not personal glory. See, because we are rooted in the promises of God, when we give generously, we know that there will be a season of harvest to come. The theologian John Calvin said it this way. Let this doctrine, giving generously, let this doctrine be deeply rooted in our minds that whenever carnal reason keeps us back from doing good through fear of loss, we may immediately defend ourselves with this shield that the Lord declares that we are sowing. Poor and false teachers will tell you that your giving is to plant the seed of favor or faith. Yet the Bible teaches us that it is by grace through Jesus that we have faith. It is by grace through Jesus that we have favor, present tense, that we have favor with God. Our giving isn't governed or motivated by hoarding or fear or even our own self-sufficiency, but as an act or an expression of anticipation for what God will do. 
If you're giving because you think you can buy God, then you've missed the entire point of the gospel. Paul returns now to the heart. This is verse 7. He continues. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The motivation for cheerful giving is hearts that have been shaped by grace. That is what God has done for us and with a posture of eagerness and readiness. In other words, whatever God has done for me through Jesus dictates how I live, the decisions that I make, how I view my money, how I spend my money. And so what he is saying here is what God is after is not the person who gives under compulsion or reluctant giving. In other words, giving out of guilt or because they're being pressured to give or they're giving begrudgingly. That would be prideful and arrogant and dangerous. Additionally, you may have heard the phrase, well, what does it look like to give? Well, give until it hurts. You may have heard that phrase. I know I've heard it many times. And I get what some individuals are saying by that, but that's not exactly what Paul is saying here. That doesn't mean we can't distill some wisdom from that, right? Some teachers, preachers might say, hey, give till it hurts. That means you might have to cancel that subscription and you might have to not go out to eat this one time and it's going to hurt. But if it hurts you and motivates you to give begrudgingly, that's not what Paul is saying in verse 7. He's not saying give till it hurts. He's saying give until you're cheerful. Give until you're cheerful. Why? Because God loves a cheerful giver. Paul doesn't give a number. He's not providing a formula. Paul goes right to the heart. How much do I give? until you're cheerful. If we are to be shaped by grace, that is our fundamental understanding of generosity that begins with the gospel, it is that which determines our generosity. Give until we're cheerful. Why? Because you and I are not bound to our possessions. At least we shouldn't be. We're not bound to our possessions. Everything that we have has been given to us by God. He is faithful for our sufficiency. In the next verse, Paul is going to say that it is God who supplies you sufficiently. I love this story by Randy Alcorn, especially when it comes to generosity and you you continue to think, man, how am I going to make it the rest of the month? Or how is God going to uh, bless me when, when we're talking about giving generously, when we're talking about giving cheerfully? Here's what Randy Alcorn says. A washing machine that should have stopped a decade ago keeps on working. A car with 200,000 miles on it runs for two years without so much as a tune-up. A checking account that should have dried up long before the end of the month somehow makes it through. As God miraculously stretched the oil and bread of the widow in Elijah's day, and he made the clothes and sandals of the children of Israel last 40 years in the wilderness, I'm convinced he sometimes graciously extends the life of things that would have normally have to be replaced. It's like, oh man, how do I know God's going to take care of me? It's not always this like tenfold. It might be in other ways that you just have no idea. When I read this, I immediately thought about my wife and I's uh, washer and dryer, which are like 15 years old, and I don't want to replace them. They're like awesome. (laughs) I don't like the new ones. 
that's another sermon for another day. <laughs> but God's been so generous with those. That God is the one who meets our sufficiency. Here's the question. Do you believe it? In verse 8, Paul says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. We give cheerfully and generously because God's grace abounds for us. The word sufficiency here could be translated to contentment. That we are content in all things, in all situations. Grace abounding in us is contentment, it is satisfaction, it is gratitude to God because of the gospel. The more content you are to Paul, the more generous you are. And so he makes a promise in verse 8, and that is that God is able to make all grace abound to you. Generosity is all shaped and motivated by grace. It's motivated by grace. And so how do, we, how do we see it in our lives? How do we know that this promise is true? In that same verse, there's an implied condition. And the implied condition is that our cheerful giving, our generous giving, is seen when we give to others, as we'll see in a moment. That's the whole point of why Paul is urging them to give generously, and he's going to be collecting so that they would give to the Jerusalem church. That's the implied condition. So I want you to think about something for a moment. Maybe you chat about it at a community group. Can you look back and see how God has provided for you in the last three months? Can you slow things down in this 80-degree building, which we praise God for? <laughs> Can you, like, he totally provided for this building. So that's number one. Can you look back and see how God has provided for you in the last three months. Here's how one theologian says it. If we find ourselves with a lack of evidence of God's grace in our lives, it is not because there is insufficient grace in God, but because there is insufficient openness in us. The grace of God motivates our hearts to be ready, to be eager, to be cheerful. Cheerful givers don't act randomly. They don't give uh, out of compulsion or complacency. They give as an act of worship that is rooted in the promises of God. To strengthen his point, because that's what Paul does, we go into verses 9 and 10. Here's what he writes. As it is written... He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Anytime you see something in the New Testament that says, as it is written, you can most often tell he's going to point you back to the Old Testament. And here, Paul, in verse 9, is quoting or cross-referencing with Psalm 112. And so he's taking the Corinthians and us back to the Old Testament, and we see in this psalm, scroll down to it, we see in this psalm uh, what Paul says, his righteousness endures forever. And when we read that, we're like, yeah, it's totally, that's God. 
right? That his, his righteousness endures forever. We see that throughout the Psalms. We see that throughout the Old Testament. However, in this Psalm, in the context of this Psalm, that's not who he's talking about. See, when we see the word that his righteousness endures forever, it's not God that the author is talking about. It's the one who fears the Lord. It's the one who is a godly person who gives generously, gives freely, open-handed with their resources, that they have joy. I'll read it to you. This is Psalm 112, verse 5, and then 7 through 9, but I would encourage you to read the whole thing. Here's what the psalmist says. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. Remember, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, that justice is meeting the needs of our brothers and sisters. He conducts his affairs with justice. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. When you see the word righteous or righteousness in Scripture, we've got we to get a little nerdy right now because it's important that we know a few distinctions. There are two kinds of righteousness in Scripture. Ready? Some of you are taking notes. There is passive righteousness, and there's active righteousness, right? What was the first one? Passive. Second one? Yes, that. We're good. All right, here it is. All right. <laughs> Those are the two kinds. Passive righteousness is what God has given us through Jesus. It is a righteousness that you and I did not and cannot earn. It is one that we cannot achieve. It is one that we have received. The righteousness of the Lord Jesus given to us is a gift. You see, in order to be a Christian, you've got to confront two things. First, you have to confront that God is righteous and that he demands righteousness. Second, you've got to confront the fact that you are unrighteous. <laughs> that we have sinned against God. That there is a great gap between unrighteousness and righteousness. But praise be to God that that problem has been solved. It has been solved through the Lord Jesus, who entered into our world, lived in our stead, died in our place, and rose from the dead, conquering sin, Satan, and hell. So that you might be declared righteous, might be declared as right before God. It's, uh, it's, it's, what is, it's, it's, uh, I just lost my train of thought. Let's just keep going, but I might come back to this, right? <laughs> so that we might be declared righteous before God. It's like a courtroom term. I'm, I'm losing it. Anyway, let's keep going. We are declared righteous before God, and this righteousness isn't yours, right? It's given to you simply by faith. Receiving this gift of righteousness is the heart of the gospel. You didn't earn it. You didn't work for it. You didn't buy it. You, by faith, received this righteousness passively. Tracking? Passive righteousness. 
Active righteousness. Active righteousness is you, as a result of being declared righteous, is now walking and living in obedience to God. The minute you are declared righteous, Jesus sends his Holy Spirit to reside in you, and he guides us to live in obedience, to follow in his steps, and to live as disciples shaped by his grace. One pastor said it this way, those who are made righteous in Jesus long to be righteous like Jesus. One of the ways in which you know whether or not you're pursuing righteousness is whether or not you actually want to be conformed to Jesus. Whether or not you actually delight in his commands and in his ways. And so when we come back to Psalm 112 and we read that his righteousness endures forever, that this individual has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, we'll read that and we'll say, oh man, I'm so glad that Jesus did that for me. And that is true. Jesus did that so that we could be and receive and experience the blessing of Psalm 112. It's so that we can walk in that active righteousness. The life Jesus has called us into is a life of generosity, a life where we experience the blessing of Psalm 112. Jesus did this so that we could become like this, so that we would delight in his commands. When you live a generous life, when you live a life out of gratitude to God for the gospel, you are generous and experience the blessing of the harvest that Paul is talking about in verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower, so it's God who supplies, and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You are entrusted with more. You grow in joy. You give so that you can give more because your heart is shaped by grace. Cheerful generosity is an act of worship rooted in the promises of God. Following that, being rooted in the promises of God leads us to live for the glory of God. This is verses 11 to 14. I want you to notice how Paul begins verse 11. He goes on, you will be enriched, enriched in every way to be generous in every way. To be enriched or to be generous in every way is to be eager, it's to be ready, it's to be cheerful. And what Paul is about to unpack right now is as a result of their readiness, as a result of their eagerness, it's going to lead him and the people that are going to receive this gift to give thanks to God, glorifying God. So who's the one that gets all the glory and honor? It is God. It's not Paul and his team. It's not even the Corinthians. That doesn't mean that Paul and his team and the people in Jerusalem aren't thankful, but the one who receives all the glory, all the credit is God. So Paul continues, in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgiving to God. 
So God's going to be receiving all of the glory. And one of the ways in which he receives all the glory is through their thanksgiving. So Paul is saying, as you move on this, as you finish this, man, it's going to stir up thanksgiving in us because of the work of God in you. And then he continues to be very practical. So it's not only us giving thanks to God. The needs of these saints are met, and they are going to begin giving thanks to God for his work in you. It produces thanksgiving in Paul and his theme because they're, they're thankful to God for the Corinthians. The church in Jerusalem begin to see and experience God's provision through the Corinthians. Paul is saying, here's what I want for you. I want you to be conduits of grace shaped by generosity. Or I want you to be conduits of generosity shaped by grace. That's what you're going to be. You're going to be this conduit of generosity that has been shaped by grace. So everything that is fueling your gifts is grace. And we're going to give thanks to God for that. Verse 13. They're going to give thanks to God for the conviction of the Corinthians. Paul continues. By their approval, the church in Jerusalem, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God. There it is. Because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. They're going to give thanks to God. They're going to bring glory to God. Because they're excelling in this act of grace, their generosity is rooted in the gospel. In other words, it's not rooted in cunning speech. Paul didn't twist their arms. They're not feeling guilty about this. It is a conviction in their confession of the gospel. See, in Christian generosity, we and they recognized that behind the generosity of a person or a church stands a generous See, to Paul, generosity isn't simply a horizontal matter. Generosity is a vertical matter. And we're going to give thanks to God. We're going to bring him all the glory because of your conviction and your confession of the gospel. What stirred up all of this generosity? Your confession. And then in verse 14, Paul adds, and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you. So he's talking about the, the church in Jerusalem. While they long for you and they pray for you. Here it is. Because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Man, they, they, they can't wait to see you. They're praying for you. They're excited for you. Why? Because your hearts have been shaped by grace. The church in Jerusalem sees it that there was no other way for this to be possible outside of God's grace and work in and through you. Therefore, as a result of that, they are going to glorify God. Because of God's grace in you. Like, in other words, they're recognizing God's grace in them. That's so trippy. That's so cool. At least to me, whatever. Cheerful generosity is an act of worship that allows us, that frees us to live for the glory of God. And finally, verse 15, Paul writes, Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. 
Cheerful giving always points us back to the greatest gift of all. We are cheerful in our generosity because of God's generosity for us in Christ. When Paul writes this inexpressible gift, what gift is he talking about? The Lord Jesus, who in eternity past decreed, or God in eternity past decreed to send the Lord Jesus to accomplish our salvation. Giving is done with Jesus in view. Generosity is the result of us grasping the gospel, submitting ourselves to the gospel. It's rooted all back in the gospel. It's what he was telling them in the previous chapter. You know the grace of the Lord Jesus. You know this, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Christian, you are rich in grace because of Jesus. When we believe the good news of Jesus, when we believe that he came for us, <clears throat> that he has died for us, that he has risen for us, and that he is coming again for us, we will be increasingly released from a life of serving our possessions into a life of making our possessions serve Jesus. One theologian continues, Perhaps, perhaps it is possible to be generous without grasping the gospel. But it is impossible to grasp the gospel without becoming more generous. Cheerful generosity points us back to the greatest gift that could ever be given to us by God. Our salvation in and through the Lord Jesus. Friends, what God is after is cheerful generosity. Remove, repent of any begrudging compulsion in your generosity. It is not something that we have to do. It's something that we get to do. God wants cheerful generosity from hearts that have been shaped by grace. And so as we wrap up this series, the primary goal was to root ourselves in the scriptures so that we, just as Paul urges the Corinthians, so that we would excel in this act of grace, cheerfully and generously from hearts that have been shaped by grace. Our second goal in this series was to recognize all that God has been doing in the life of our church over the last several months, while at the same time anticipating what God will do in the coming season. There will be a harvest. If you were at our members meeting this past week, you heard about all that we're praying for so that we would make disciples who know and live like Jesus. So to summarize, at the end of every sermon, I've given you a couple of things. Week one, it's like, so what do I do? Week one, it's pray. If you remember, 
the, the piece of encouragement was start with God questions, not I questions. Pray. What is God asking, telling you to do? What is God pressing on your heart? What is God reminding you of concerning the gospel? What is God pressing into you concerning this act of grace? It is not separate from our spiritual life. Just as much as you and I want to grow in faith and knowledge and speech and love and earnestness, we will excel in this grace as well. Pray. Last week, we looked at two things, prioritize and plan. Prioritize. Everyone gives. You might not even be a Christian. You give. You give. What are you giving to first? Do you prioritize giving with Jesus in view? And then finally, plan. At least last week, plan. That might mean you're going to revisit your budget. That might mean you need to have a conversation with your spouse. That might mean you need to go seek counsel. That might mean you need help with your budget because you're not great. That might mean some actual actionable steps to begin planning. And here's the last one that we come to. Commit. Commit. Commit to what you say you will do, to what you say you will give. If something goes wrong, say something. But commit to what you say you will do. Here's where the motivation for that comes from. Here it is. You ready for that? 2 Corinthians 8.11, what we looked at last week. Paul tells the Corinthians, so now finish doing it as well. Complete it. Complete it so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. You were eager, you were ready, you were excited, you're on that spiritual high. Commit, follow through. Three verses earlier, Paul says, hey, by doing this, it will prove the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. So he's just putting it on the table. And that's all we're going to do. We're just going to put it on the table. It proves that our love for one another is genuine. We referenced 1 John 3 a few times. Let us not love one another only in speech or in word, but in truth and in deed. What was the, what was the, the commentary? Talk is cheap. I didn't say that. John did. But it's true. (laughs) Listen, if you're not a Christian, thank you for being here throughout this series. Even if you're new, thank you. I hope that you've seen from a biblical perspective two things. First, God's economy doesn't work the way ours does. It's way better. But he invites people like you and me into this economy to experience joy, gratitude, and true, meaningful happiness. Second, that experience is only possible for the one who has placed their faith, their trust in Jesus. Outside of that, you are in spiritual debt. You are considered an enemy to God, you are at war with God. 
But God doesn't leave us there. I mean, you're here for a reason. It's not coincidence. More than anything, the message of the gospel is that God pays for sinners' debt with his perfect credit. We don't have to pay him back, but instead we lovingly get to follow him with a new heart, with new desires, with a new future, with a new life experienced out of gratitude from the gospel. Therefore, turn away from your idols. Turn away from your sin. Turn away of anything that controls you and has possession over you and your heart and turn toward the grace of the Lord Jesus. Church, generosity is is not a complacent routine. It is a cheerful act of worship to the one who first gave all. May we, our church, Storehouse McAllen, first give from hearts shaped by grace so that we would give to the work we're anticipating God to accomplish through us. I hope this series has been a benefit and a blessing to you. Let's pray. Father, everything that we have is because of you. Everything. You have not only provided for us, your grace is sufficient for us. And we know this is true because of your grace toward us in Jesus. Everything always comes back to Jesus. God, we confess that often we are cheerful or generous, but not both. (laughs) Yet we only have to look to Jesus to see that he was both for us. And Jesus is not simply our example, he is our substitute. Further, because of you through him, we can be cheerful and generous, and this begins with our understanding of your grace for us. Forgive us. Forgive us, Father, when we choose to not trust you. Forgive us when we allow our possessions to control our worship. Give us the grace to release control and to trust you in all things, especially in our finances, our generosity. The Apostle Paul urges the Corinthians to excel in this act of grace because it is not separate from their spiritual growth. The same is said for us. Give us the courage and urgency to excel in this act of grace because of our gratitude toward Jesus and reconciling us to you, reconciling us to one another, and to communicate the message of reconciliation to a watching world.